think there's a, it wasn't planned originally this way, but there's a nice connection between last Sabbath and this Sabbath as we were also blessed last week by our middle school uh, young people as they led out in our worship service and the Adventist Children's Choir. And the investment financially that you have given over the years and in energy and prayers and everything else, we got to see on full display last Sabbath, and so we praise God for um, that. And we praise God for the continued commitment that we will give to our, our young people. Today we want to talk about buildings, which may seem weird to talk about buildings in church, or that there is a sermon that can be preached on buildings in church, but it is possible, I hope. <laughs> Maybe you'll disagree by the end of the sermon, but I think it's possible. There's a common refrain that you hear in uh, Christian circles. You've probably heard this before. The church is not a building. It is what? People, right? Have you heard that? The church is not a building. It is people. This is, of course, true, but it is also a cliche. And cliches, while often true, can also serve as as thought-terminating phrases, We hear the cliche, we say, yes, that's true, and we move on and don't really think about what else can be discovered in this reality. In an analysis of Scripture, we see that while people are indeed the church, the structures that they utilize, the structures that they worship in and and do life in, play a significant role in who they are for good and for bad. To simply say the church is not a building, it is people, moves us away from from true analysis of the importance that buildings actually play within our development as a people. The importance of physical structures in relation to our relationship with God and with others. This this importance is is first actually demonstrated by God and made clear by God in the scriptures. If you want to turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 25, in Exodus chapter 25, and beginning in verse 1, the Bible tells us, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, Goat's hairs, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And then verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God was very particular about his building and the house that he wanted them to build. In fact, God is so particular that he inspires the rest of chapter 25, chapter 26, chapter 27, chapter 28, chapter 29, and part of chapter 30 to talk about a building and its purpose in the lives of his people. And then God takes a brief pause, and then God comes back to it 
circles back around and inspires Moses in chapters 35, chapters 36, chapters 37, chapters 38, chapters 39, and chapter 40 to talk about this building. The majority of the end of the book of Exodus is all about God's tabernacle, his sanctuary so that he could dwell in their midst. Eleven and a half chapters on a structure, on a building. Why? Because it is the place where God would symbolically and even then in a very literal way dwell in the midst of his people. It is the place where he would meet with people and give them counsel and instruction. In Exodus chapter 25 verse 22, God said in one part of this tabernacle, in one part of this building, it would be a place where he would meet with Moses and with the other leaders. God's people were still the church. God's people were still the most important aspect of what makes up his family. But God designed the building in such a way that through its design, it would help to shape the people into who they would become. That God would use the symbolism of that building to teach them, to guide them, to help to instruct them in many things. Ellen White wrote in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, Thus, in the ministration of the tabernacle and of the temple that afterwards took, it, took its place, the people were taught each day the great truths relative to Christ's death and ministration. And once each year, their minds were carried forward to the closing events of the great controversy between Christ and Satan, the final purification of the universe from sin and sinners. The actual physical building that God had them build helped to teach these people great truths and ultimately help them to understand more clearly the plan of salvation and who the coming Messiah was. Later, when David wanted to build God a permanent house, God said no. We read his prayer that he prayed for Solomon. Tizana, our head principal at Spencerville Academy, read his prayer uh, there in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, but earlier in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, David says something else. You see, David wanted to build God a house, wanted to build God a temple once they were settled in Jerusalem. And God said to David, no, you will not build me this temple. And so in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 7 through 10, we find out why God said no to David. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord, my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days, and he shall build a house for my name. God did not want a man of war and a man of bloodshed to build his house. God's dwelling was not to be a symbol of a, of a mighty warrior or of military conquest. God's house was not to be a place that, that had been established because people had died for that spot, for that location. God's house would be a place of peace and rest. A place where the people, all people, could go 
and there meet with their God. When they sinned, they could go and they could spend time there repenting to God and, and, and receive the assurance of forgiveness. A place that reminded them to come back to God when they wandered away. A place they would pray, where they could go and pray for help when they were in the midst of famine. A place where they could go and give thanksgiving when they were in the midst of abundance. A place to draw them close to God. The temple was to serve as a reminder of their relationship with God and to help guide and shape them in that relationship with God. In the little book of Haggai, chapter Chapters one and two, it's about God's temple. And, and in that little book about God's temple, uh, there's insight that we see that God's temple had fallen into disrepair. It was no longer being cared for the way that it should. And well, it's just a building after all. I mean, after all, the church is God's people. Why does it matter if the, if the building falls into disrepair? But, but God had a different idea about his house in verse 5, he asked them this question in Haggai chapter 1. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? Did God need a luxurious house? No, he has the whole universe. And I'm pretty sure that heaven's a bit more luxurious even than these beautiful stained glass windows and this nice organ. Then why did it matter? Because the people had become dependent upon their own work and their own labor. They cared more about their, their crops and their fields and, and what was happening in their world. They were no longer acknowledging God or recognizing that they needed to be dependent upon God to provide for them in all ways. And God, in order to restore this relationship and, and, and to help them understand the significance of their dependence upon him, he said, you need to restore my house. The house was to play a role in shaping them and leading them back to full dependence upon God, the one who was truly their provider and their giver. The building helped to shape them. In the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, these two individuals, they saw the people's need to return and commit to God, to return to God and to recommit to him and they saw very concretely the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple as intertwined with this idea. Intertwined with this, with this concept that, that these buildings would, would help to, to remind them of their connection to the God of the universe. When the foundation of the temple was laid, we are told in the book of Ezra that, that the people both rejoiced and wept. And that it was so loud and so magnificent that they couldn't decipher between the two. This rejoicing and this weeping. In the New Testament, we see that, that the temple began to take a different shape. There was a remodeling, we could say, that was done within the temple. And as the temple was remodeled and reshaped, it also began to remodel and reshape the way that people related to God and their relationship with God. In Matthew chapter 12, we, we discover that, that in the temple, there was now a marketplace, a place where they could sell goods for the sacrifices and, and, and people could come in and sell their, their, their wares within the temple. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus drives out these people selling items and he shouted out, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's 
den. Their redesign of the building to have a courtyard for those selling items had reshaped the purpose of God's building from a place of prayer to a place of greed. Ellen White in Desire of Ages described it in this way. The sacred enclosure had become one vast exchange. One vast exchange. The building was not what brought the people salvation, but Jesus knew the way the building would u- was used would affect how they related to their God. Why do we even have buildings? I believe that God knew something. He knew the big idea long before Winston Churchill ever said it. In 1943, uh, after the bombings in London, one of the buildings that was bombed was Parliament, and they were discussing how to rebuild this building. And, they, and, and many in, in England wanted to build this building in a particular way. And Winston Churchill said, no, we must build the structure in just, just so, with, with, with a roundness to it, so that there's a roundness to it, because the buildings represent us. He said, we shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us. We shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us. The Lord uses the, used the places of worship in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to help to shape his people, to teach them the plan of salvation. We see the truth of this from Scripture, and, and we see that Winston Churchill understood this idea that, that buildings help to shape us, but we can also look at our own history as a Spencerville church and recognize this is a reality also. Forty-plus years ago, when the members of Spencerville Church started to consider building this facility, because this church is 79 years old, next year it'll be 80 years old. You might remember a few years back we had the 75th anniversary of this church. But 40-plus years ago, people started dreaming about building uh, a building on this spot. It was not an idea that was embraced by all people, to say the least, In fact, there was some debate and conflict over such a decision. Some of you that were here might recall some of this. Some members felt that the Spencerville Church should stay where they were on Good Hope Road and Spencerville Road right over there. And that all excess members, because that building was much smaller, that all excess members should go out and plant other churches. We don't need to get bigger. Let's just go out and plant other churches. The discussion on that topic was, was, was so intense and so large that there were actually two families that said, you know what, we don't want to lose this property in the meantime. And so two families purchased this location that we are now on, and once everything was resolved between Potomac Conference and Chesapeake Conference and between the members themselves, they donated this land for free to the Spencerville Church. The garden that is going in out there, you might have noticed a table and a little place that we put in, is to recognize Uh, Rose Nelson, who was one of the families, one of the contributors to the purchase of this land. The decision, though, to shape or to build this building and to move to this location not only shaped who we are as a church, but it shaped another church as well. When the Spencerville Church made the ultimate decision to grow larger, some of the members decided they felt that God was moving them in a different direction. And so they went and planted another church, a church that is now a light in the community and that has an academy that is a light in the community. The only church and school exists because Spencerville Church chose to move from that location to this location. 
Some of you in the future, as Spencerville continues to grow, may decide that you want to plant a church. Know that we'll support that. A church should not just grow, it should multiply. That's a good way to be. And we would support that. But the Spencerville Church did choose to come to this property. And can we all acknowledge that we would be a much different community? That, that we would have different, we would not have the same influences within our conference and within our, our community and even maybe within our world if we had stayed at that previous location and not come here. Buildings help to shape who you are as a congregation. Buildings, they shape us. Then in 1989, another decision was made that has played a major role in shaping this congregation. Frank and Dolly DeHaan offered to install the instrument that is in front of you, or some of it is behind you as well. And this room in here underwent major renovation. There was a small choir loft over there and a small choir loft over there, and there was a, a baptismal tank here. And all of this was carpeted in red. If you want to see the carpet, you can go right over there in that room there. If you miss it and you can sit on it and touch it, it's still rather soft over there. Good to see you all over there. It is still, you know, it's, it's good quality carpet. Good job by you all. But they chose to make a decision to, to change this. That decision and the cosmetic transformations on this building, I don't believe anyone can deny helped to shape who this congregation is now and who we are and how we worship. And again, as the decision to build the new building was not appreciated by everyone, neither was the remodel of this room that took place in 1989. As one member and leader of another local church told me, when Spencerville put in their organ, that was our best year of growth as a church. That's what they told me. The, structure was, we, the structures we gather in, especially that we gather into worship and do ministry, they shape us, which is why it is of utmost importance that as we look to the future, as we ponder God's purpose for this building and the land that we have purchased and all of our campus, that we commit to having our hearts and our ministry shaped by Jesus Christ so that he is the one truly shaping our buildings. The original plan of the tabernacle in the wilderness was to teach them the gospel, the plan of salvation. The temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. To put, it, put that another way, a place where all people would come and, and grow in their knowledge and their love of their God and their Savior. We have built a church and it has shaped our growth. We have remodeled this sanctuary and it has shaped who we are and, and how we worship. We built a school and it has shaped our commitment, our ongoing commitment to our young people and their spiritual lives. Without abandoning any of these, can I suggest that we make this building and any future buildings a place where the gospel is preached out in full and where people can come and have gospel relationships and experience gospel community. The type of gospel community I am thinking of is Acts chapter two, in which in verse 41 it says, those who accepted this, his message, 
speaking of Peter's message, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They were growing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then in verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Gospel community living. Right now, we are primarily a community that encourages attendance at events and worship services. Not because we don't want to do the other, but because of who we are, our space. We'd love to invite you all to lunch this afternoon, but we can't put you anywhere. Well, we can put you somewhere. We can put a hundred of you in the fellowship hall. We could another couple dozen in the hallway here, the hallway here, some classrooms here. Maybe some of you better have thick coats and go outside. What must we do and how can our buildings help to shape us into a community where people can always come and gather to pray in spaces and not have to wonder if there's a room available? What can we do to to encourage folk to to picnic together on a warm and and sunny day or, or stand by a fire on a crisp, cool evening? What can we do to have a place where where people can at any time come and study the Bible in small groups and pray with one another? Ellen White wrote in the book, Testimonies of the Church, Volume 6, that, that the house of God shall be dear and sacred to every one of his loyal children. How can we help to make this space a dear and sacred place to every one of God's children? And in the book of evangelism, she wrote, I wish our buildings to represent the perfection God requires from all his people. Just as the people are shaped by the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our buildings should likewise be shaped to teach, to train, to support, to encourage, and to nurture people in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ellen White, one more time, in writing to the leaders at Battle Creek, and to set this up, just the previous night, they had been having a meeting at Battle Creek, and they had been talking about how we need to build a larger church, a bigger church. And Ellen White said, no, we do not need to do this. We should not do this, in fact, she said to them. And she came back the next day, and she told them that, that the night before, after she had gone home, God had, had shown her in vision Haggai chapter 1 and chapter 2, and that she had been wrong. And then she said this to them, the place in which we worship is becoming too small for us. This is not according to the will of God. We will reveal that we honor our God by preparing a place where we may conduct religious services that will harmonize in every possible way with the sacred, elevated character of the truth we advocate. In everything, in everything, we should show our faith toward God by the works that we do in building a church. We cannot see God with the natural eye, but we can reveal him in our deference and respect and Christian politeness and, the, and how, we manifest, how it's manifested in our works. Thus we show that we honor God. Our buildings shape us, and they also reveal to a world our commitment to Jesus and what he stands for. Yes, wonderful worship, 
but also wonderful gospel-centered community. As Elder Lutz said and acknowledged, there were memorials that were established so that when people passed by throughout history, they would be reminded this is what God has done for them and in that place. We want all our facilities and all our property to be a place that reminds people. These people must serve a mighty God, a reminder of what Jesus has done in our history. And as our buildings have shaped us in the past and we cannot deny it, I pray they will shape us in the future to be ever more an acts to community that loves praying together, studying together, that most wonderful biblical act of eating together and being sent out together to be lights for Jesus in the hamlet of Spencerville and far beyond. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will shape our buildings and shape us. And may you, Jesus, receive all the honor, all the glory, both now and forevermore. Amen.